Hey, everybody. Welcome to the weekly show where we take a look back and forward at some of the biggest news stories affecting the sport we love. Whether it's a broken home run record, a famous player's birth, or a major franchise trade, we'll have it all covered. I'm Jeff Lambert, and this is This Week in Baseball History. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's show. If you're accessing this podcast, that means you've already signed up for our weekly newsletter and that you're a fan of the main show, Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. So I'm really excited that you're joining me, that you've joined the community, and that you're accessing this bonus uh, episode that I put together for you on a weekly basis. So thanks for your support. I really do appreciate that. So For this week, we're going to be going into two separate topics. We're going to start off by covering the major events that happened this week in baseball history, and then I'm going to take one of those events, and I'm going to delve a bit deeper into it to give you a little mini baseball history topic that you can take with you during this week, share with friends around the water cooler, however you decide to dispense it. So to get things going, let's jump into the historical moments that happened this week. On April 23, 1954, at Sportsman's Park, Hank Aaron hits the first of his 755 Major League home runs off of Vic Raishi of St. Louis. The Braves ended up winning that game in 14 innings, 7-5. On April 24, 1956, American League umpire Frank Umont was the first to wear glasses in a regular season game when he officiated a contest between Detroit and Kansas City. He was a former NFL offensive tackle for the New York Giants, so he was still an intimidating appearance to most players and fans, even with the glasses. On April 25, 1977, the Cincinnati Reds romped to a 23-9 victory over the Braves in Atlanta. The Reds tied a National League record by scoring 12 runs in the fifth inning off of three different Braves pitchers. George Foster had seven RBI in that game, along with five runs scored, two home runs, a double, and a single. Wow. On April 26, 1995, Coors Field, the National League's first baseball-only stadium in 23 years, opened in dramatic fashion in Denver, Colorado. Dante Bichette hit a three-run home run in the 14th inning to lead the expansion Colorado Rockies to an 11-9 win over the New York Mets. On April 27, 1973, in 50-degree Detroit weather, Kansas City Royals rookie Steve Busby no-hit the Detroit Tigers 3-0. It is the first Royals no-hitter and the first thrown at Tiger Stadium since Virgil Trucks did it in 1952. Busby also became the first pitcher to throw a no-hitter and not have any at-bats during the game. On April 28, 1952, the St. Louis Browns sent two minor league players, third baseman John Britton and pitcher Jim Newbery, to the Hankyu Braves of the Japanese Pacific League. The Browns became the first team to send players outside of the United States as part of a deal. The owner of the club who negotiated this deal was none other than Abe Saperstein, who was the founder, owner, and coach not only of the St. Louis Browns, but of the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters. And on April 29, 1986, Roger Clemens set a major league record by striking out 20 hitters, 
as the Boston Red Sox defeated the Seattle Mariners 3-1. Way to go, Rocket. And that concludes our quick hits for this week in baseball history. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our focus story. Just a little baseball history nugget that you can take with you during the week. We're going to focus on one specific story that I mentioned previously, and that's the opening of Coors Field, which occurred again on April 26th, 1995. So I want to jump a little bit deeper into that because Coors Field is the home stadium still of the Colorado Rockies. It was a very interesting story of how it came to be, and I wanted to delve into a little bit into that park give Rockies fans a chance to celebrate us talking about their home turf. So to give you a quick overview, Coors Field came to life in 1995 after two years of construction. The stadium's located in the heart of downtown Denver. It has seating capacity of over 50,000 fans. Now the idea for not only a team in Colorado, but also for this field was born in the late 1980s. And that's when the Rockies were granted an expansion team uh, status by Major League Baseball. So the team's ownership group, which was led by businessman Jerry McMorris, started to put plans together to build the -the state-of-the-art stadium to compete with other modern ballparks. So this began well before they uh, arrived in 1995. There was a lot of planning that went into making sure that when this team took the field, they had a field worth talking about. So Coors Brewing immediately got involved because they wanted their name attached to this new project. They purchased the naming rights to the stadium as part of a $30 million investment in the Rockies in 1991. Now, this agreement was renewed in 2017. So Rockies Club Ownership just signed a deal. I shouldn't say just, but recently signed a deal with Colorado to keep the name Coors Field in place until at least 2047. So I would think for probably the life of this park, it's going to remain under that name. So let's talk a little bit about the design of the stadium. Now that there was an expansion team coming to the city, what was it going to look like? What planning went into it? Well, at the start, the design was automatically, uh, to the people involved, going to be inspired by other classic ballparks. They wanted it to have a throwback to early 20th century stadiums, have that traditional brick exterior and a green metal roof. Those would be the two call signs they wanted it to be known for. So uh, ground broke on the project. And it wasn't too long into construction that workers started to find a number of dinosaur fossils throughout the grounds where they were building the stadium. And rumors began to circulate that it wasn't just, you know, little bones here and there, but they were finding very large remains, such as a seven foot long thousand pound triceratops skull. So there were some fossils found, but the uh, extent and size of those were obviously exaggerated as the truth came out. But some of those fossil fragments were uh, ended up uh, being exported, and they're still housed at the Museum of Science and Nature in the city. So because of that discovery and because of all the rumors that surrounded it, the nickname for the early park when it was under construction was Jurassic Park. And it stuck in some ways, even though it was eventually called Coors Field. The Rockies mascot is a triceratops called Dinger. And that was born out of this finding uh, dinosaur fossils during the construction of the ballpark. And then, of course, that huge rumor that they had found this massive triceratops skull, which was not the case. 
So the stadium is known for several interesting features that really set it apart from others during the time period. Probably the most notable is it has an expansive outfield, one of the largest in the major leagues still to this day. So why did the architects build such a large uh, outfield for this new stadium? Well, it came back to the high elevation in Denver. And so we have it situated in a place with high elevation. There's thin air and a wide open outfield all contribute to a phenomenon known as the Coors Field effect. So basically what happened was that we saw more home runs start to be hit and higher scoring games as the Rockies started to play in comparison with other ballparks. And it was criticized by a lot of baseball fans early on as being, quote, a beer league park, which basically, you know, you go there, you're going to get offensive numbers that are off the charts. So it was a bit of an oversight. They built this large, you know, expansive outfield and they didn't factor in the air concerns. So the Rockies have worked to try and be able to even the playing field to make sure that it's not too much of a offensive friendly park. So some things they did to that, including they installed a humidor in 2002, seven years after the park opened. Now a humidor is like a climate controlled room and they put it in the stadium and they made sure to store all of the baseballs in that humidor right up until game time. And what that guaranteed was you would have a consistent temperature and humidity level and keep the baseballs from drying out just sitting out there on the field or just sitting out in regular atmospheric conditions. And that actually helped quite a bit since installing that humidor and keeping those balls in that temperature controlled space until game time. That has worked to reduce the number of home runs at Coors Field. So certainly the the outfield, the large expansive outfield and the juiced up offensive numbers were what the park uh, mainly became to be known for. But there's other unique features at Coors Field. So for instance, there's uh, an area called the Rock Pile. That's right in center field, and it offers standing room-only tickets at a really low price point, making games more accessible to fans who maybe couldn't afford the more expensive sections. So the Rock Pile has really become a beloved part of the stadium. It's a great place for fans to go and congregate and cheer for the Rockies. In its first year, in 1995, tickets only cost a dollar if you wanted to sit in this area. So still to this day, it's low-priced. Now, most of the seats in Coors Field are a dark green color, but there are seats in the 20th row of the upper deck, and they're purple. The reason for that is it's meant to mark the elevation of one mile above sea level uh, where, where those seats are located. So that's a nice little touch that they included in the park. Another interesting addition is Coors Field has a microbrewery, of course, you know, Coors Field, in the stadium, right behind the right field stands. And it's operated by the Coors Brewing Company. And what they've become known for is that microbrewery experiments with a lot of craft beers on a very small scale. And the brewery has ended up winning multiple awards over the decades, um, right going to right to the Great American Beer Festival. They're well known for what they're producing. As a matter of fact, if you're a fan of Blue Moon, which is a popular Belgian-style wheat beer, that was invented at this microbrewery attached to Coors Field, and it's still mass-produced right in that same spot. Some other uh, notable stadium features. Behind the center field wall, there's a landscape decoration that reflects the typical environment of the Rocky Mountains. So you'll see, uh, you know, depictions of a waterfall, fountains, pine trees. And whenever the Rockies hit a home run, a member of the Rockies hits a home run, the fountains will shoot up high into the air. So 
there's a lot of unique features about Coors Field. There are critics that still really uh, are against this stadium and would like to see it either massively renovated or replaced. Now, some of those go back to, again, like what we talked about, is the high offensive rate that was seen early on, even though that's evened out. But some other concerns include that uh, players have a poor adjustment when they're going to play road games. So Rockies players, when they have to play on the road, they really struggle to keep the same level of production. So the Rockies score an average of just 3.9 runs per game on the road, and that's the lowest amongst all teams in the past decade. So this has had a detrimental effect on Colorado's all-time road record, which sits at 888 and 1352. So that's a 39.6 win rate, and that's the worst in the majors by a very large margin. Some fans also feel that pitcher development for the Rockies has suffered because of the advantage that opposing hitters still, even though slightly, enjoy at Coors Field. Historically, Rockies pitchers are more likely to finish with an ERA of at least four. And some have claimed that starting pitchers would have developed better if they didn't start their careers in Colorado. So there's some notable relief pitchers that have joined the club. There have been some notable young pitchers that have started their careers in Colorado. And there has been criticism that they never reached their full potential or suffered significant drop-offs in their stats due to playing in these higher altitudes. And this has led some pitchers to cite uh, even privately their reluctance to go play for the Rockies, to accept a, a contract to go play there. But overall, Coors Field... It's a beautiful stadium, has a rich history, it has really unique features, and that does make it a must-visit destination for baseball fans, I think. I mean, just the fact that you get to see these stunning mountain views and get to see an offensive-focused game. I think there's something for everybody to enjoy by visiting Coors Field in the heart of Denver. Well, folks, that includes this edition of This Week in Baseball History. Be sure to check back next week for more memorable moments and news and updates from around the league. I'll see you then.